tap into your most original thinking, organize your ideas, and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Welcome back, friends, to our podcast, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. And when we travel around the world talking to creative practitioners, we certainly have seen a theme of storytelling and storytelling in so many mediums. But we're going to talk today about how art and music and storytelling all intertwine and really focus on the characters and the character development. And we're talking with author Alex Papadimus and artist Joan Lee May about their new book, Quantum Criminals. Thanks. Thanks for having us. It's going to be such a fun conversation. A, I love these kind of rock biography review kind of books, but Steely Dan is right up on top of my favorite bands. So I want to start with Quantum Criminals, and I almost have to say the subtitle before we even jump into it, because I find myself even singing the subtitle. It's Ramblers, Wild Gamblers, and Other Soul Survivors from the Songs of Steely Dan. So, Alex, when you took on this idea of looking at all the characters, I, yeah, I'd certainly say Ricky and Get Back Jack and maybe Dr. Wu. But boy, the contents of these characters goes deep. Yeah, I think that was what was exciting about it, because this started out, I was going to write a Steely Dan book before Joan came into the picture, but the idea to base it around characters was an idea that Joan had. And then our illustrious editor, Jessica Hopper, who's a mutual friend of both of ours, put us together on this project. And that, I think, transformed what this book could be, because the, once the idea of basing it around these characters, because there are so many in all of these songs, and as you keep going, and we've been... So we had a Joan made a giant spreadsheet at the beginning of this process <laughs> that had 160 characters on it, which is like a Robert Altman level of character yes. that we kind of don't want. It's too, it's, what, it was what a great metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> too many people moving around in that picture. Yeah. But yeah, once we, so th like, that was not my idea. It was Joan's idea, but it made everything come together in a way that I don't think it would have. Th this book might not be done uh, at this point, <laughs> two or three <laughs> years after its inception, if that had not happened, because it was just such a great organizing principle. And it was such a really, it was became such a fun way to think about the process of writing about this band's whole long history and all of this, all of the whole catalog and the, the whole McGillow, which is very big. Yes. Well, and John, to say that they're colorful characters, I think Rolling Stone called it mind-bending. Other people have certainly seen the colorfulness of the characters, but wow, the high-impact graphics, it does distinguish this book. Thanks. Yeah, I, prior to diving into this, I've always painted in a very high chroma way, all of these gouache paintings that are 18 by 24 or 9 by 12. And I've always painted slightly psychedelically in terms of palette. So it was an easy application of that natural tendency here, for sure. Yes. And the collaboration piece, this is almost like the songwriting. There's the which came first, the music or the melody or the words, which came first, the Fagan or the Becker. What did your collaboration feel like as this whole thing was unfolding? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We we talked once a week as we were doing this and kept each other in, in the loop of what we were working on and went back and forth and cer certain ideas evolved. We started from this spreadsheet that Joan had made with all of these characters on it. 
And as I started to write into it, we would say, oh, I don't know that I have anything for Charlie Freak necessarily. So maybe we're not going to do Charlie Freak on this one. Or I had this idea that to talk about hip hop samples of Steely Dan. And for that one, it was like, oh, so what if Rudy from Black Cow is MF Doom? who's a rapper who's sampled, prominently sampled Black Cow. And just we just talked around how to do that. And then Joan was done with a lot of this work before <laughs> I was. So as I started, I got the chance to see what it was going to look like as it was happening, because my piece of it was still unfinished because I'm a slow writer. And even though this one, we did this one kind of fast, but it still took longer for me to finish. So I was able to see how it was coming together. And I think that spirit informed how I wrote. Once I saw, like you, you mentioned the psychedelic aspect of it, and there's a surreal aspect to some of these that I really love, but also a real humanity and a real dignity, or there's, just, there's a sense of the way that these, pe these people are looking directly in the camera and thinking about trying, pleading with you with their eyes or something like that. And I think that really just spurred me to think more about the humanity of these characters as I was writing about them. That's the sort of the, the mind melt that occurs here. I loved doing it this way because writing books is really lonely and depressing and you're stuck in a room <laughs> with your feelings of inadequacy and wondering if this is going to be any good. And so it was really amazing to be able to both to see how this was going to come to life and have that faith in how it was going to come to life and to know that, but also just, just to have somebody to talk to. Look at this room that I'm in. Uh, uh, I was going to say anyway. the lonely writer in the basement just clacking, clack clacking away. Joan, Alex mentioned this humanity factor. I was curious as to your, I guess what we would call the creative brief. The book jacket calls them rogues, creeps, schmucks, cold-blooded operators. Were you trying to like translate that into the art or bring your own interpretation of the characters? So when this project started, I started making a fanzine called Danzine, where I was going to depict every single named character in the entire Steely Dan universe. And I was doing that independently. And Alex had been working on a book, the idea of what a book might look like with Jessica Hopper of University of Texas Press, who is a mutual friend of ours, and she put our projects together. So I've been a lifelong Steely Dan fan. They're, they've always been my answer to what's your favorite band. And that's largely because my parents didn't have that many records. And I, I gravitated towards them very early on and never strayed. So I've had images in my head, if not very crisp pictorial images of these characters, just general vibe ideas of what they might materialize into for 44 years or whatever. And the figuring out how to articulate that had a lot to do with me and Alex's conversations. And again, just to Alex's point, it being just so good to have somebody to talk to when you're undertaking a large thing. And there's something like 120 paintings in this book. And he's in his garage. I made this in an attic. <laughs> As above, so below. I was in an attic with really crappy, a dormered ceiling and it leaked and it, 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 that's where I worked. And it's really been incredible to, to have a project with somebody else because I've never, I've always been a lone wolf all the way across the board. And it's, it makes you approach things differently and spurs you on when you're like, oh, look at this. Yeah. Oh, I read this. It gives you a little encouragement there.
And yes. some of these characters clearly names like Josie and Peg stand out. But as I was looking through the list, I guess I never would have thought of the major dude as a character. I knew obviously the song and uh, what it's about, but I didn't pull out the persona like you have. Yeah, I think for years, several friends and I who are Steely Dan fans have been like, oh, they're such a major dude as a as just as a colloquial way to refer to somebody referring to the song, but to refer to somebody who is a solid friend, who's somebody you're going to call if you're in trouble. But also the major dude is fallible. Also, the major dude maybe deals pot. Maybe there are a lot of ways the major dude can be. And I realized after I painted the major dude that he looks a lot like Mark Marin, which I didn't mean to have happen, <laughs> but it happened and now I can't unsee it. And now neither can anybody else because I keep talking about it. Yeah, to me, the major dude is both an archetype and refers to individuals. And that is one possibility in the in the universe for who he might be. Yes. And Alex, beyond just the creativity of it, there has to be research and rigor into what did the writers of the song mean this character to be, not just maybe how we, the listeners, interpret it. What was some of the research for you behind these characters? Oh, man, there was a whole lot of rabbit holes to go down, even though Donald and Walter did not give us all that much information about who these characters are in a lot of cases you would just pull one little thread and then you would find all of these other things. And so I found myself reading a lot about, they've acknowledged, for example, that the kid Charlemagne is based on Owsley Stanley, who's the sort of famous acid chemist, who is a, a kind of an intimate of the Merry Pranksters and Ken Kesey and then the Grateful Dead. So that led me to rereading Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test for the first time since college. You know, it's, that was such a pleasure to go back to because I, I didn't remember how good that was, even though I'm a big Tom Wolfe fan. And then going into Owsley's history and kind of what ended up happening to him, because it is very much like the kid Charlemagne story. He winds up at loose ends, such an important figure to the counterculture and had, so, had such an impact on the way the Americans lived and thought and the American mind and everything. He winds up at sort of a depressing ending. He's He was actually very worried about climate change very early. Like in the 80s, he was terrified of a great flood. He was sort of ahead of that. So yeah, that one, but all of these, talking about Sayoko Yamaguchi, who's the cover model from Asia, and like finding out which something I never knew. I was like, I wonder who that is. And then it turns out like she really is somebody and has like an amazing story in the history of in international fashion. It's the, the first Japanese model to walk the Paris runways and then like for, I think, Issey Miyake maybe in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. And like all of that stuff, it just seemed, like I said, you just pull the one thread and then chase it where it goes, as Donald might say. And, I, and that was really fun. And it really ended up being, I don't know that, I think I imagined it would be that, but I don't know that I imagined it would be this much, that it would end up being this much of a history of the period that these songs came out of. Well, it's somehow a, it's substantial yeah. history, yes. And thinking about that history, Alex, from the standpoint of the timeline, from Jack and I Cousin Dupree is relatively recent as far as Steely Dan albums go. Did you find the characters changing over time or did the tone or the angle that Donald and Walter took, did they morph at all over that timeline in your view? 
Yeah, I think they do. I think that one thing that's interesting is that once you get to the reunion albums in the 2000s, once you get to Everything Must Go and uh, Two Against Nature and Everything Must Go, you've had a few years of solo work by both Donald and Walter, not a whole lot, but enough that you start to know them as separate songwriters in a way that you didn't have the chance to before. If you listen to The Nightfly, if you listen to Come Curiod and then and to Walter's 11 Tracks of Whack, it suddenly becomes a lot clearer who was bringing what to the table in the Steely Dan amalgam more so than I think it was prior to that. You, so you get that, but I think you can also hear them getting older and you can hear them, their sensibility shifting and maybe getting a little more, there's a, a tiny bit of sentimentality creeps into it. And I think about the narrator of shame about me, uh, which is the song like a uh, Joan painted Franny from NYU. Who's the, the girl who comes back into the narrator's life after all these years. And, they talk about it's their group of friends and whatever, what happened to this guy and all these guys got rich and did this or whatever. And Franny herself has become some kind of a, a star of stage and screen. And the narrator's just out of rehab and he's working at the Strand Bookstore in New York City and a little bit putting it back together, let's say. He's, he's had been through some things. As much as that's a made up story, obviously, it's a fictional narrative. It does mirror what happened with Walter, where he, he got into some trouble over the years. There were some addiction issues and conquered that and then restarted his life and career. And by the time he was back with the Dan, things had shifted. So I think it does reflect, it, even though they were still writing songs like Cousin Dupree, which is from told from the perspective of a guy <laughs> who wants to make it with his cousin, which is still creepy after all these years. There's something different going on in, with their relationship to those characters, to be sure. They're, they're older and they're writing about adult relationships in a different way. Because I think we, we forget that they're basically both 30 years old when Steely Dan ends for the first time, right. right? Around Gaucho, they're barely 30. So when they're writing Hey 19, that age gap is only like 10, 11 years, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. yeah, you tend to forget that because it does seem wider. Yeah. Because they covered so much ground in such a short time. It's not really that's basically just the 70s. But like they're and we think of them as being old because I think they always presented themselves. They acted like they were dirty old men when they were 24. It's <laughs> like they just and which is a way to never seem like you're aging because you just grow into the thing that you've always presented to be. Right. Absolutely. And an obsession with the past and an obsession with the future, but never presence in the presence. Yeah. And Joan, from a visual standpoint, many of these characters, there were, as you mentioned in the book, no MTV at the beginning. Many of these characters are being visualized for the very first time. You really have to conjure up your own image of this. How was that informed for you? So I had a folder on my computer called the Dan Casting Gallery. And it was populated with found photos and images from advertising catalogs and sewing catalogs and things from the 60s, 70s, 80s. I had pictures of friends and I, and I took a lot of pictures of myself for just body image reference stuff. I had generalized ideas of these characters in my head for a really long time, but for finishing putting them together, and for looking for inspiration in the instances where I hadn't visualized Pixeline previously, for instance. The person who who is Pixeline in the book is this woman I know named Kathleen, who is, 
I could see her being that character for Halloween. And she's a buddy of mine and she's, I'm, I think I'm like 13 or 14 years older than she is. And she's full of joie de vivre and she's this like impossibly gorgeous creature who I just, I made an AB and I used her face. So there are the faces of people I know throughout as well. And every day I sat down to paint and ended up with these cats on the page. It was delightful and fun for me also, because in the process of painting, I tend to make choices intuitively. A lot of the time I don't do much ever in the way of sketching things out. Although I'm told that I should, I certainly <laughs> didn't for this. Thanks for the advice folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the time things would just materialize and, and get painted. Yes. I think as a writer type myself, not at the level you are, Alex, but I think about much has been written about, you need to get up, you need to write so many words, you need to get your creative rhythm. And Joan, you've touched ever so briefly on your painting, your graphic development style. Do you have that kind of rhythm or habit that you find that you need to keep the work moving? For me, one thing that I really like to keep in mind that I, God, I'm trying to think of what book I read this in. Oh, it's going to bother me. I'll think about it and I'll send you what, what good. Book this comes out of and you can put it in show notes or whatever. Yeah. But I was reading about the idea of creative human beings. We're all sponges and we have to be really cognizant of the fact that we need time to soak things up. And then when we're full, we must be wrung out or else. And once we're totally wrung out, then we're ready to soak things up again. So there has to be a natural rhythm of, and that can happen several times per day, or that can be a process where you're bringing yourself out for months and then you're soaking things back up for months. And it's really, it changes throughout your life, what that rhythm looks like. For me, what my daily habit is and what things look like varies wildly to my in my life at the time and what my environment is. And if I'm left completely to my druthers, if I have nobody, nothing, no other forces at all pulling me to do anything other than work, I will work all night long. I will sleep all day and I will work all night. I have done that at various times in my life and it has really worked for me. When I was making this book, I had a very regimented schedule and I would wake up and get right to it. And it was treating it like a nine to five and that worked. So I think what's important in terms of tips for people listening, wanting to hear about people's creative habits, you really have to find what works for you. And you have to be, you have to have a lot of grace with yourself when what works for you no longer works for you and know that you were the only authority on what works for you and know that you need to change it until it does work for you or else right. you're going to cheat out of your own work. Great advice. The sponge image is a strong one, isn't it? It's like whenever it's full, you got to get it out. Yeah. Got to get it out <laughs> or you'll go bananas. Folks, my guests, Joan LeMay and Alex Papadimus, they are the author and illustrators of Quantum Criminals. It's just out this month from University of Texas Press. Thinking about the now release of the book, it's a whole nother 
phase, isn't it? You've got the creative phase. We got to get this thing done. We got deadlines. We got editors to keep happy and publishers to satisfy. But now the book is done and it's out. There's no better feeling than when you see it in real life, huh? It's been pretty awesome. It's been pretty cool. And we were talking about the media blitz or the media <laughs> parades and all the telling about the book. How do you find that part of now this process where you're reflecting, you're talking about the craftsmanship? How are you finding that? It's fantastic. I love it. And I, being completely honest, I was a music publicist for 17 years. I worked in music for most of my adult life up until I started painting full time, which was about six and a half, seven years ago. Um, with some other little things in between. And I've always been on the side of supporting artists, musicians, and I've been a freelance writer. I've played in bands. I've done all kinds of stuff. But having a thing that you worked on with somebody else out in the world is such a great feeling. And it's not really one that I've had the privilege and honor to have before. You have illustrations published. I've had a ton of gallery shows and art shows and weirdo spaces for the last, whatever it is, 20 years. And having shows is really satisfying. Selling paintings is really satisfying. But this is a whole different and beautiful animal because just being able to talk about the work you do with other people who are also interested in that is just a joy. It, there's so much to learn through these conversations. What do you think, Alex, holding a mirror up to the work now? Yeah, it is interesting because I also have, for different reasons, I've spent way more time in your seat asking the artist <laughs> about their creative choices and why they did it and how that maybe try, trying to get at something about them through that. That's the bulk of pretty much all the writing that I've done in my career, which is 20 years now too. And it's interesting and weird to be on the other side of it. It's really super positive because everybody's really excited about this book and you get to talk to people that love Steely Dan and that's and, and are just stoked that this exists. And there's nothing better than that because like I said earlier, it's very lonely to be writing in a room alone and hoping people like it and that part where people tell you that they like it. So far is not getting old. I'm pretty into it. So... <laughs> I think we'll see how I feel after the, as the circus moves on from town to town. But yeah, that's been really fun. But it's it's fun to have people tell you what your book is about. I really do enjoy that. And that's been really gratifying because people have what they find interesting about it. Because also when you work on something for this long, you lose any perspective about what's good in it and what's what and you're like is any of this good? It's like you sir, I have that problem. Like things things really do start to feel like dead work the longer I'm working on them. And it, so it, it's, it reinvigorates your relationship with it because people are discovering it for the first time. And they're like, I can't believe like you did that. Like all of this, like people are- Never gets old, does it? Keep that's doing a, it. <laughs> and like, but that's the thing. It's like, you get to almost open the present with them at the same time because they're experiencing this thing and they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. Like I've, it's, so you get to 
that sense of discovery, I think, is really nice. So I, I think that's been the funnest part of it, of being on the other side of the interview thing, is that all of these, all the enthusiasm that people have had for it. So far, we have not been interviewed by anybody who's not a Steely Dan fan. And I don't know that. So <laughs> right. it helps that all of these Steely Dan fans are in positions of power in the media now. They've moved yeah, and they're all yeah, they're, there. You, know, you go. <laughs> these kind of oh. intellectual aesthetes who've moved up through the ranks of everything. Yeah, with with that great musical taste. Yes. Yeah. But not just the boomers. I think you also have caught on to this new yeah. generation of Steely Dan fans, huh? This cult following that has built a little bit wider now. Yeah. It feels like this was a cult thing when we started in some ways, at least among people. To me, I'm 45 turning 46. Like I am the tail end of Gen X, like right before it becomes the millennial but I don't identify that way. I identify it as I'm a young ex rather than. <laughs> and I feel like for me for a long time and the way that I was, I always felt like I was part of a cult, at least among people my age, the way that who felt this way, who loved Steely Dan. When I was starting to get into them, it felt like a weird thing to get into. And even when we started on the book, it seemed, oh, this is going to be pretty niche in some ways. But I feel like in the time that we worked on it, things built. And now it really feels like you can drop a Steely Dan meme on Twitter and everybody's going to get it in a way that maybe they wouldn't have before. There's some kind of a weird thing has happened with that, which is obviously good from our perspective. And there's some speculating I do in the book about how this came about. And I don't know that it's any one reason necessarily. I think there's societal factors and factors to having to do with the way people consume music now versus even a few years ago, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it's, it's so radically different. And I think the idea of the canon has been blown open by streaming and by the, yeah. the way people experience it. And Joan, you mentioned the working together piece and the collaboration. Has this work kindled now an interest to in more collaborations? No more lonely working in the attics or basements? I, Alex and I hope to work together on some stuff again in the future. When you're a painter or when you're a writer, or when you're a potter, or when you're, there are so many different creative disciplines where at the end of the day, it's you versus you and the actual making of the thing, even when it's in a collaborative framework, you're still there yourself with the work. I just finished, I'm finishing officially in a couple of weeks, a year of study in London at City and Guilds of London Art School. And it was mind-blowing to be working in a studio space with several other people. There was this huge, expansive Victorian studio and about 15 other artists all, all working in this same studio space. And we all had our own little corners and our own little spaces. But I had certainly never painted around any other human beings before. And I was really trepidatious going into that experience because I'm easily distracted. I, if I'm interrupted, I, it takes me a while to get back into it, but it completely retrained my brain in terms of what it is to discuss work with others in real time. So from where I am now to pre-book, it's a different ball game, and collaborating in the future is definitely something that I want to do more of, which I think is healthier because it's not necessarily so healthy to self-isolate when you're any type of creative person, even though many of us are prone to it. Yeah. Ultimately, it is you and the work, isn't it? 
I love Not that. Always. What a terrific conversation, guys. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And Alex and Joan, I think like any time when you finally meet the people behind the work, now I hear the voice differently. Now I'll see the illustrations differently. So I really appreciate the personal connection. Oh, we appreciate you having us, Mark. This yeah. has been Absolutely. awesome. And continued good luck with the book. Quantum Criminals, The Ramblers, Wild Gamblers, and Other Soul Survivors from the Songs of Steely Dan. And as it says on the book jacket, it is funny, it is discerning, and it is visually stunning. So congratulations. Thanks, Thanks so much. much. And listeners, come back again next time. We're going to continue our around-the-world journeys talking to creative practitioners of all kinds, how they get inspired and how they organize ideas, and most of all, how they gain the confidence and the connections to launch their work out into the world. So until next time, I'm Mark Stenson, and we're unlocking your world of creativity. We'll see you soon. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliQ Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and thepeaceroom.love.